today we are continuing our series called Kingdom Purpose. And actually, the last two weeks, you've gotten to hear two different takes on the kingdom mindset. And so Pastor David shared two weeks ago and Pastor Lane last week. But today we're jumping in and talking about personal purpose. And sometimes with these series, it's very set and it's like, hey, you're doing this week and you're doing this week and you're doing this week. For this series, when we were discussing it, there was, okay, who is really interested in a particular week? And I was like, all right, I will do whatever y'all ask me to do, but I really want this particular one because this is something that just really resonates, something I'm really excited about this morning. And there are kind of a couple main parts to this. And the reality is the first part you may not completely agree with, but you'll probably like. The second part there's a decent chance that you'll agree with completely and not like at all, because that's kind of where I'm at on it. So I'm just giving you the heads up on there. So if you get there and you're like, I don't like this part, well, hey, I didn't either. So um, there we go. But really, the first part is this. We were, you were, and I have been created in the image of God. And so we're going to journey back as we begin all the way back to the very beginning, to the beginning of the universe and to the beginning of our scriptures that we have. And look at Genesis chapter 1 as we jump in this morning. And it says this, it says, In the beginning God created the heavens and the earth. Now the earth was formless and empty. Darkness was over the surface of the deep and the Spirit of God was hovering over the waters. Hang on to that picture. And God said, Let there be light. And there was light. God saw the light was good, and he separated the light from darkness. God called the light day, and the darkness he called night. And there was evening, and there was morning the first day. And God said, let there be a vault between the waters to separate water from water. So God made the vault and separated the water under the vault from the water above it, and it was so. God called the vault sky, and there was evening, and there was morning the second day. And God said, let the water under the sky be gathered to one place, and let dry ground appear And it was so. I love that pattern too. God said, and it was so. God said, and it was so. God called the dry ground land, and the gathered waters he called seas, and God saw that it was good. Then God said, let the land produce vegetation, seed-bearing plants, and trees on the land that bear fruit with seed in it, according to their various kinds. And it was so. The land produced vegetation, plants bearing seed according to their, their kinds, and trees bearing fruit with the seed in it according to their kinds. And God saw that it was good. And there was evening and there was morning the third day. And God said, let there be light in the vault of the sky to separate the day from the night. And let them serve as signs to mark sacred times and days and years. And let them be lights in the vault of the sky to give, the, give light on the earth. And it was so. God made two great lights, the greater light to govern the day and the lesser light to govern the night. He also made the stars God set them in the vault of the sky to give light on the earth, to govern the day and the night, and to separate light from darkness. And God saw that it was good. And there was evening, and there was morning the fourth day. And God said, let the water teem with living creatures, and let birds fly above the earth across the vault of the sky. So God created the creatures of the sea, and every living thing with which the water teems, and that moves about in it according to their kinds, and every winged bird according to its kind. And God saw that it was good. God blessed them and said, be fruitful and increase in number and fill the water and the seas and let the birds increase on the earth. And there was evening and there was morning the fifth day. 
And God said, let the land produce living creatures according to their kinds, the livestock, the creatures that move along the ground, and the wild animals, each according to its kind. And it was so. God made the wild animals according to their kinds, the livestock according to their kinds, and all the creatures that move along the ground according to their kinds. And God saw that it was good. Then God said, let us make mankind in our image in our likeness, so that they may rule over the fish and the sea and the birds in the sky, over the livestock and all the wild animals and over all the creatures that move along the ground. So God created mankind in his own image. In the image of God, he created them, male and female, he created them. And just stopping there for a second, the phrase that keeps coming to mind as I read this is the Latin phrase, imago dei, which means the image of of God. And so we see, and we're, we're going to dig into this a lot more in a minute, but we see this picture, and there is God, and God is the triune God, and we're not going to try and unpack all that today, because any, any example I can come up with will be a heresy. Uh, go search the, um, there's a fun group on the internet that like proposed every possible explanation, like, well, that's this heresy, and that's this heresy, and that's this heresy. It's hard for us to grasp, but God says, let us God, God the Father, God the Son, God the Holy Spirit, let us make man in our image. But we see that in the image of God and the likeness of God. Picking up in verse 28, God blessed them and said to them, Be fruitful and increase in number. Fill the earth and subdue it. Rule over the fish in the sea and the birds in the sky and over every living creature that moves on the ground. Then God said, I give you every seed-bearing plant on the face of the whole earth and every tree that has fruit with seed in it. They will be yours for food. And all the beasts of the earth and all the birds of the sky and all the creatures that move along the ground, everything that has the breath of life in it, I give every green plant for food. And it was so. And God saw all that he had made, and it was very good. And there was evening, and there was morning the sixth day. So take a minute there and think. In five days, God created the universe like, all of it. I mean, there was nothing. And God speaks. And galaxies, it's like galaxies fly out of his mouth almost. You know, he speaks it into existence. And there they are. He creates the sun, the moon, the stars, galaxies, solar systems, black holes, uh, you know, quasars, pulsars, anything that you can think of in space. God creates it and sets it into motion. And then he begins, he creates, you know, there's water and there's land and he creates, you know, the, the, the fish and the, the birds and all of these things. And day after day, he recaps what was made and says, it is good. In the sixth day, when he creates livestock, it stops for a minute and says, God saw it and said, it's good. But when God created mankind, humankind, he looks at it and he says, it is very good. And none of us were there that day. But God had you and me in mind included when he said that. It is very good. He's talking about us just like he was talking about them. Genesis 2, thus the heavens and the earth were completed in all their vast array. By the seventh day, God had finished the work he had been doing. He was busy. So on the seventh day, he rested from all his work. Then God blessed the seventh day and made it holy, because on it he rested from all the work of creating. 
all that he had done. And then we go from the poetic account that we read in Genesis 1 into the beginning of Genesis 2, and then we begin to read more of a narrative that is the interaction between God and humankind. It picks up in verse 4, this is the account of the heavens and the earth when they were created, when the Lord God made the, heaven, the earth and the heavens. Now no shrub had yet appeared on the earth, and no plant had yet sprung up, for the Lord God had not sent rain on the earth, and there was no one to work the ground. But streams came up from the earth and watered the whole surface of the whole surface of the ground. Then the Lord God formed a man from the dust of the ground and breathed into his nostrils the breath of life. And the man became a living being. So we have this picture and the richness of these words. And it, the, the Hebrew language, there aren't a lot of words. There's like 7,000 in, in biblical Hebrew compared to like over a million that have existed in English. You know, a couple hundred thousand are used today. But the picture we see is God reaching into the ground, into the dirt, picking it up, taking it, molding it, fashioning it. It's actually, the implication's a little bit more of a potter. Um, I'm not good at pottery, so I'm not going there today. Uh, instead, I just get to play with dirt for a minute, and hopefully that. Um, but it says that God takes it and he forms the man, again, out of the dirt of the ground, and then... This beautiful, beautiful word that God takes it and he breathes. He breathes life. And when he breathes the life, the man becomes alive. Because the breath of God. And, and this word here, I, I really wish, and I don't get to make up what words they used. I really wish they had used the other word that they normally use for breath and breathe, because that word carries the connotation of spirit. But normally in Hebrew, when you see breath, spirit is connected to it as well. And it's this picture, in essence, of God taking his spirit and breathing it into his creation. Everything else good, again, the universe, the galaxies, everything, all of that good. But this human that he's creating, and he breathes life, and when he breathes that life, the man becomes alive. So again, this beautiful picture that's there. But just a chapter later, sin enters in. And when sin enters in, we get something, a, 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 there's a, a, a view called original sin that basically says this, that sin enters the world through Adam and Eve, and once it entered there, we were all like doomed. Like we were all just bound to sin and to, to, to have our lives begin to fall apart. And it was, you know, it was going to get worse and worse and worse for us. But we'll, we'll come back to that in a minute. But I want to flip that for a minute, that idea of passing it on. And I want to take it, that idea of God breathing into the man and that being passed on. That life being passed from generation to generation. Acts 17, verse 24. It says, the God who made the world... And everything in it is the Lord of heaven and earth and does not live in temples built by human hands. And he is not served by human hands as if he needed anything. Rather, he, gives, he himself gives everyone life and breath and everything else. From one man he made all the nations that they should inhabit the whole earth. And he marked out their appointed times in history and the boundaries of their land. God did this so that they would seek him and perhaps reach out for him and find him, 
though he is not far from any one of us. And again, that picture in Genesis 1-2 of the Spirit of God hovering over the water just right there. And it's this picture that when we are apart from God, that he is as close as he can be just waiting for us to turn to him because he is not far from any one of us. Verse 28, for in him, in him we live and move and have our being. And he says, as some of your own poets have said, we are his offspring. And again, it's the same very breath of God given life, that gave life to Adam, that gives life to us. And literally that we have our being, that we exist because of God. Then we have the picture of Psalm 139, starting in verse 13. For you created my inmost being. You knit me. You knit me together. It's as if God wove us together in our mother's womb. I praise you because I am fearfully and wonderfully made. Your works are wonderful. I know that full well. And again, the implication in verse 14 is that we are his works. And he looks and says, your works are wonderful. And guess what? I'm one of them. And you're one of them. You are a work of God, and God says, you're wonderfully made. And again, it's this picture of the creator of the universe who, again, took dirt and made a person and breathed life into it. That it's this intimate care that's there, this intimate weaving together of you. And not only does he take care in making you, but as he says, he made us in his image. So what does that mean for us, that we're created in the image of God? Well, first, we don't have to meet certain standards. For instance, not having to change a microphone in the middle of your message. That's a standard that we don't have to meet. Um, You're allowed to laugh. (laughs) So I've, I've used this example before, but Michael Jordan, when he was with the Chicago Bulls, There are 25 different times that he had the ball in his hand with the game on the line at the end of the game, and he takes the shot, and he makes it, and they win. That's pretty incredible. I mean, this is the guy you want to take in the shot in the end. But 26 times he had the ball in his hands at the end of the game with the game on the line with the Chicago Bulls, and he missed. Babe Ruth, 700-plus home runs, 1,300-plus strikeouts. Two of the greatest athletes in their sport ever. And they failed more than they succeeded. It's, you know, and it's, there were days that someone was better than them. And the danger for us is this. If we feel like we have to meet these standards, then we get into this trap of saying, well, if I get the right job, I'll be valuable. I'll have value. I'll have worth. If I get a promotion, if I make lots of money, if I marry the right person, if my child succeeds. And we begin to live in fear of failure. And we avoid certain activities where we feel like we might fail. We get nervous or anxious or uptight. We always feel like if I make a mistake, I have to defend myself because I can't look bad like I've missed that mark. We become depressed when we fail. We're critical of others. We get angry at people who do things that make us look bad in some way. And and like we don't know what we're doing. But we realize that we're made in the image of God. We don't have to worry about that anymore. We don't have to worry about hitting some imaginary standard to have our worth and value. The second is we don't have to win the approval of others. Because otherwise, to feel good about ourselves and to feel like we have worth, then we can only be seen with certain people. 
We avoid people that we think will reject us. We exaggerate the truth of our accomplishments and the things that we've done, our experiences. We want to make sure we always dress right. Like, are you really going to preach in a t-shirt with, with khakis? Like, is that still a thing? You know, like, you know, that's, you know, you're kind of wrestling with that there. And, you know, relation, you know, relationally, we do whatever someone else wants us to do. We avoid any sort of agreements, anything that's going to make us look bad. And then we have the fear of rejection. So again, we're going to avoid certain people. We, we become nervous and anxious when we think someone might reject us. We, we're uncomfortable around people who are different than us. And it bothers us tremendously if someone is unkind to us. We don't get it. We're like, what, what did I do wrong? How am I not meeting your, your standard of approval? Any of those things. And so it's scary that if that's the view, then we have to be perfect. We can never let down. Again, whether it's a standard we're trying to meet or approval we're trying to win from someone else, there's never room for letting somebody down or missing that mark. And think about this. Adam and Eve, when they were created, had they ever sinned? No. And what happened to the perfect people? They sinned. They messed up. And so we look at it and say, well, if they were perfect and they messed up, what hope in the world do I have? You know, know, what do I do there? And that's that concept, again, of original sin. And there's a guy named um, Augustine of the Hippo, and he came along kind of in the 4th century towards the 5th century. And this idea had kind of been floating out there, but he's like, again, the idea, Adam, once Adam and Eve sin, then sin just passes from generation to generation to generation. It's just going to get worse and worse and worse and worse And we're way down the line, so it's probably really, really bad. At best, the freedom that we have in our will to resist evil is like almost nothing. That's the view that's there. And so again, if Adam and Eve were that, that, that standard of perfection, what hope do we have? Matthew 5, 48. I don't know if you've ever really wrestled with this verse, but it says, Be perfect. This is Jesus talking. Be perfect, therefore, as your heavenly Father is perfect. In, in Romans 3.23, which we don't have in there, it's, it says, but we've all sinned. We've all fallen short of the glory of God. Sin meaning miss the mark, that we have all missed the mark of the standard that God has for us. But did you know the word in Matthew 5.48 for perfect doesn't necessarily mean perfect the way we think of it? Instead, it means complete. It means mature, coming to the end of a process, full-grown, of full age, in the 2nd century, there was a guy named Irenaeus, and he was really kind of the first actual theologian of the church. And he spent a lot of time on this Imago Dei concept. And basically, he looked at it and said, you know what? I don't think Adam was actually created complete. I think Adam was created, and humankind were created almost like a child. Not saying that he was physically a child, but as someone who needed to learn and to grow to become mature and complete, or perfect. And so Adam, beginning that process, wasn't ready to be there yet. And he messed up just like we mess up. But what happens is that even though Adam failed, Jesus came along, and he paid the price. And his incarnation, the God with us, brings us hope and life. And then what Jesus did on the cross John 19, verse 30, it says, When he had received the drink, Jesus said, It is finished. With that, he bowed his head and gave up the spirit. The word for it is finished has the same root as the word for perfect that we see in Matthew 5, 48. Complete. Bringing that to that completion there. Jesus saying, 
this process of you growing and maturing, it is now actually really possible because of what I've done on the cross. Philippians 1, verse 4 through 6, In all my prayers for all of you, I always pray with joy because of your partnership in the gospel from the first day until now. Being confident of this, that he who began a good work in you will carry it on to the completion until the day of Christ Jesus. And guess what? Completion is the same root word as it is finished of Jesus on the cross and be perfect in Matthew chapter 5. God's work, he's saying, guess what? You don't see how you're going to get there, but I do. I will complete the work that I have and that I'm doing in you. Romans 8.29, it says, and this is a difficult verse. We're going to spend a little tiny bit of time, and there's a whole lot more time you can spend here. But it says, for those God foreknew, he also predestined to what? To be conformed to the image of his son that he might be the firstborn among many brothers and sisters. And again, a lot of views, depending on how you take some of the words that are in the midst of that. But basically, when they're talking about for new here, a lot of the scholars, as they look into it, they say, it's more than just God like saying, you're the one who's going to do it, you're the one who's going to do it. But he's like, God saying, the people who are going to choose to follow me, here's what I'm predestining. Not who's going to choose me or not choose me. And again, you spend a lot of time and arguments on that. But what he says is, those who choose me, those who choose a relationship with me, here is what is going to happen. They are going to become conformed to the image of my son. They're going to become more and more and more like him. And guess what? In this room, if you have a relationship with Christ, that means you. And that means me, that we become more and more like his son. And so we have this picture there in, in that. And then Romans 12, 2. Do not conform to the pattern of this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind. There's a lot of formed if you look. Conform, transform. Then you will be able to test and approve what God's will is. His good, pleasing, and perfect will. Again, today, if you came hoping that I could tell you exactly what God's will is for your life, like I can't necessarily what that, tell you necessarily what that means for your job. Can't necessarily tell that you know what that means if you're you know if you're in the dating stage or that's down the road somewhere like who that's going to be or anything like that. But what I can tell you is that God says my will is for you to become like my son. So what does that look like? Well, that's again kind of the there's a lot that we could do with that. But what I want to focus on is one thing. And so we've had a lot of the part that we like. We got a little bit more of that than we get the part we don't like as much. But here we go. The first application of this is that there are people in your family, there are friends that you have, that they are made in the image. They are created in the image of God, and they may not know that. They may be struggling. They may be trying to make it through, and you can speak truth to them. You can speak truth and say, you know what? You may be struggling right now. You may not have it all together. Guess what? I don't have it all together either, but here's the thing. God has a plan for you, and he values you. He made you in his likeness. He wants you to become conformed to the image of his son, and you can do that, not because of who you are, but because of who God is and who God will be in you. And so I, you know, I spent some time as an assistant principal, and I'd have, you know, a lot of my days spending would be dealing with attendance issues or kids who are in trouble. Like, that's a fun thing to repeat over and over and over again every single day. But time and time again, a kid would come in, and so often the, re the repeaters 
it was because they didn't know that anybody believed in them. They didn't know that they had value and worth, and they're just trying to fit in. They're trying to do whatever they're acting out and to be able to speak truth into their life as much as we could in a public school, but to speak words of truth that they had value, that they had meaning, that they had worth, that there was someone who believed in them, and to see the difference that that can make in their lives. Think of of those in your family, again, and your friends that, that are struggling and saying, if I could speak that word of truth into their life, what difference would that make? Now, the second part, the second one is not as much fun, and that's the person who annoys you. The person that gets on your nerves. Did you know that they were created in the image of God? And how different would our interactions be with them if we looked at them and said, that's someone who's created in the image of God. And again, you might go, they must have fallen pretty far in the fall. But again, look in the mirror and we fell pretty far, far in the fall too. The image of God that was there in them. And to see them and to ask God, pray to God that he will help you, help you see them the way that he sees them. And the difference that that can make. The third one is the person who doesn't look like you or is different than you. Guess what? They were created in the image of God. Tony Evans, when I was researching for this, Tony Evans wrote a pretty short article on Imago Dei, and this is what he had to say. He said, all people, no matter what race, share a common origin in Adam. The book of Acts tells us that all people came from the same source. To take it a step further, when we look at the creation of mankind, we also learn that the triune Godhead created us in his image. In theology, we call this Imago Dei, referring to the concept that humans are created in God's image. An image is a mirror or a reflection. This also means that everybody, regardless of their race or ethnicity, has intrinsic value and worth. Dignity is innate. All humans are born with esteem because they are created in the image of God. Therefore, any form of racism, elitism, discrimination, or oppression is not only a social issue, but it's a sin issue at its core. By treating a fellow image bearer inferior because they are of a different race is sin. And if we are going to achieve unity, the first thing we must do is speak honestly. That is, we must call any form of racism, elitism, discrimination, or oppression exactly what it is, sin. God can only begin the healing and unifying, unifying process when sin is addressed. Let's begin to treat each other as image bearers, people made in the image of God Almighty. Look at what we're dealing with in our country right now. Look at the divide. Look at the things that we're struggling through. And again, we want to make it nice and kind of tide it over. And a lot of people had problems with that in the past and everything. There's still a sin nature at work. And we have to call it what it is. And to the part that we've played in it, repent. And then pray for God to break other hearts as, as he breaks ours to bring healing in that area and again, if we begin to see each other as created in the image of God, it gets a whole lot easier than if we're just looking at what we see on the outside. And the fourth one is this, the person that you hate, or at least don't like, if I want to give you that at least, but they were created in the image of God. First John, starting in chapter 2, verse 1, my dear children, I write this to you so that you will not sin. But if anybody does sin, we have an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ, the righteous one. He is the atoning sacrifice for our sins, and not only for ours, but also for the sins of the whole world. 
We know that we've come to know him if we keep his commands. Whoever says, I know him, but does not do what he commands is a liar, and the truth is not in that person. But if anyone obeys his word, love for God is truly made complete in them. This is how we know we are in him. Whoever claims to live in him must live as Jesus did. We're conformed in the image of Christ. Dear friends, I am not writing you a new command, but an old one, which you have had since the beginning. This old command is the message you have heard, yet I am writing you a new command. Its truth is seen in him and in you because the darkness is passing and the true light is already shining. Anyone who claims to be in the light but hates a brother or sister is still in the darkness. Anyone who loves their brother and sister lives in the light, and there is nothing in them to make them stumble. But anyone who hates a brother or sister is in the darkness and walks around in the darkness. They do not know where they are going because the darkness has blinded them. Chapter 4, verse 11, dear friends, since God so loved us, we also ought to love one another. No friend has ever seen God, but if we love one another, God lives in us. And his love is made complete in us. And in verse 15, if anyone acknowledges that Jesus is the Son of God, God lives in them and they in God. And so we know and rely on the love God has for us. God is love. Whoever lives in love lives in God and God in them. This is how love is made complete among us so that we will have confidence on the day of judgment. In this world, we are like Jesus. There is no fear in love. If you want to know one of the reasons why we have trouble loving those that don't look like us and those that we that we may even hate is because we're afraid. The biggest weapon that the enemy has in this is fear. We talked about a little bit earlier, but again, that fear that's there. There is no fear in love, but perfect love drives out fear because fear has to do with punishment. The one who fears is not made in perfect love. We love because he first loved us. Every person is created in the image of God. As a result, they have value and they deserve to be treated with dignity and respect. And again, we're not going to get there with others if we don't embrace that about ourselves, that God looks at you and says, I made you in my image. I crafted you. I formed you. I breathed life into you. I love you. And I sent my son, Jesus Christ, to die for you. I'm going to put up a picture. I don't like this picture. It's a number of years old now, because if you recognize at all who's in it, you've got the Chancellor of Germany, you've got the Prime Minister of England, again, this is a while back, you've got the Secretary General of the UN. Um, We'll skip over to the right for a minute. You've got the President Bush, who was president at the time. You have the Prime Minister of India and the President of China at the time. There's another person in that picture It was Osama bin Laden. This picture, when it was made, was made as a promotion for a conference that was being held in Seattle. So they commissioned it. They had it made. They made contracts with malls to put it up. And when they put it up, there were immediately calls of anger to the malls that caused them to back up. And guess who the calls came from? Christians. Because, no, no, that, that, that can't be that you'd have Jesus there. And he's not washing his foot at the minute, but it's, it, it's pretty obvious he's about to wash Osama bin Laden's feet. And that can't be. They had to move where they were going to have the conference because the Christian college where it's going to be held had so much, got so much bad press and publicity and people complaining to them that they had to go find a secular venue because the secular venue didn't have a problem with this picture. 
And so reflecting on this, a friend of the organizer had this to say. He said, what does this say about many, how many American Christians envision Jesus? Obviously, the protesters believe that Jesus would not wash Osama bin Laden's feet. But Jesus died not only for our sins, but for the sins of the whole world. And this obviously includes Osama. So if Jesus died for Osama, how are we to imagine him being unwilling to wash his feet? What the protest reveals is that many Christians have tragically allowed their patriotism to co-opt their faith. They've allowed their American citizenship to take priority over their kingdom citizenship. Despite the New Testament's instruction for disciples to consider themselves foreigners and exiles wherever they happen to live and to consider their real citizenship in heaven. Many American Christians seem to want a Jesus who will defend their country and hate their national enemies as much as they do. Many want the Jesus of the Middle Ages, whom crusaders called on to help them slaughter, not serve, their Islamic enemies. Many seem to want to reduce Jesus to just another version of the tribal gods that have been called on for centuries to bless tribal battles. Most wars throughout history have been fought under the banner of some god or another. Fortunately, the real Jesus isn't like this. He's not anything like this. Knowing all power had been given to him, John says he wrapped a towel around his waist and washed the dirty, smelly feet of people he knew would deny and betray him in a couple of hours. Knowing he could call legions of angels to vanquish his foes, the real Jesus rather chose to let them crucify him because this is what they needed him to do, though they of course didn't know it. Then with his last breath, the real Jesus prays to his father, to forgive his barbaric torturers and all of us. This is the kind of power that omnipotent God of the universe uses against his enemies. And this is the kind of power we're to use against our enemies. It's the power of Calvary-like love. We're called to imitate the Jesus who washes the feet of enemies, dies for them, and prays for their forgiveness. We are to live in love as Christ loved us and gave his life for us. When we were enemies, Jesus nevertheless ascribed unsurpassable worth to us by paying an unsurpassable price for us. We who claim we are his disciples are called to do the same. We're to sacrificially ascribe unsurpassable worth to all people, including our enemies. Like I said, I don't like that. And there are people who argue and say, well, Jesus washed the feet of his disciples. And Peter, you know, said, I'm not worthy. And Jesus said, if I don't get to do this, you're not one of me. But again, Jesus washed Judas' feet too. And again, everybody in that room, he knew that they were going to deny him. He knew they were going to betray him. He knew that I I don't even know the man. I don't know who you're talking about. I wasn't with him. And in that moment, knowing that, Imagine what it would be like trying to to go through that meal with these people, knowing that that's what's about to happen. And that's what Jesus does. That's the example that Jesus sets. And the reality is this, and again, Osama bin Laden's gone. And it's easy to put somebody as graphic as that there and be able to go, oh, well, you know, that just have to be God to do that. But again, what if you put up the person that you can't stand the most. The person that you, again, if you're willing to admit it, maybe hate or certainly don't like and certainly don't love. The person who votes differently than you. The person who advocates for different things than you. The person who maybe has turned away from faith. The person who may be struggling with it. The person who may question your faith or put you down or any of those things. And again, 
if you don't know that you're created in the image of God and that you have the worth and value that he's given you, I don't know how you could begin to think you could do this. But when instead you realize that God created you in his image and that he is fashioning and forming you to become more like his son, Jesus Christ. And again, it says the way we know we're in him is that we live like him. And again, this is what he does. He loves those who would hate him, who would reject him, who would kill him. And he's calling us to live in that same way. But again, first, if we're in this room and we haven't embraced what God has done for us, that's the first step. That you'd say, God, thank you for your incredible love that I couldn't begin to deserve. Like the dirt, like that's how I feel sometimes. But you see value and worth because you're the one at work. So if that's where you are, that you would embrace that today. But again, if you have others around you and you're like, okay, I've got that. I realize that God's, God's love and it means so much to me. I want to speak truth into others. Then think and pray about who would God have you to speak that truth and that life into them that you breathing. It's like you passing that breath of God into them to give them life when they may be down and despondent and in despair. But you can spread that. And again, if there's someone that you're like, I, I, I can't go there. The reality is this, God knows it. Admit it. And then ask God to begin to work in your heart. Say, bring me to that point where I can love that person, where I could choose to serve that person, where I can begin to see that person the way that you do, that I can help spread your life and your love to them. You were created in the image of God. I want to show you one last picture and we'll be done. This will be about two slides forward, I think. I guess it froze on it. I had a picture of a painting, and the painting was actually known as the Savior of the World. That painting sold a couple years ago for $450 million dollars. And it was Leonardo da Vinci that did it. So, I mean, that has a lot to do with it. But the way that the price of that is determined, I kind of gave it away already. The way that we know that that painting is worth $450 million is that someone was willing to pay $450 million for that painting. And again, the price that God paid for you was his son, Jesus Christ. That's the value he places on you. And that's the value he places on the other. Let's embrace that today. Let's pray. Father, we come to you this morning. And God, it floors me to think that in all of my imperfection, in all of my failings, in all of the ways that I let you down, that when I was dead in my sin, that is when you sent Jesus Christ to die for me that I could have a relationship with you, that I could find value and worth and meaning in you. And even when I do that, sometimes I forget that you've made me in your image and that your plan and purpose for my life, it, it's gonna look different than other people's, but your ultimate plan and vision is the same in that I become conformed 
to the image of your son, Jesus Christ, that I look more and more and more like him in the things I say and the way that I live. So God, today, wherever anyone in this room is, if it's just meeting them in that first spot of letting them see that you love them, that you care for them, that you have created and fashioned and formed and knit them together, that they would be able to embrace that. If instead it's, it's being able to spread that love to, to a loved one around us or someone that we care about deeply, that we would do that. And then God, if there are hard places in our heart, and again, whether it's some elitism or prejudice or racism or whatever it may be, that God, you would break our hearts. God, that you break our heart for the things that break yours. And God, if there are those that we would hate, those that we would never think of praying for or that sometimes we might feel like praying against, that you would let us see them with your eyes, that they were created in the image of God, that you love them and that you want them to know that you have created them and have a plan for their life and want a relationship with them, God. So Father, whatever we need to do this morning, maybe we'd be faithful to respond. In Jesus' name we pray.